Hi everyone, this is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. Our episode today features a discussion with author J.S. Puller. You may know uh, J.S. Puller from the book Captain Superlative. Now, let me just say to you, best title that I have seen in quite some time, and uh, life is too short to be anything else is what they say on the front of the book, and life is too short not to have J.S. Puller on your list of publishing authors, and it is also too short for you to not have J.S. Puller on your bookshelf all the time and sharing J.S. Puller. She has a new book out called The Lost Things Club. I really liked this book when I sat down and read it. It's a pretty tight read, but it reflects her background as a playwright and as somebody who's used to teach fourth grade, um, a degree in elementary education, uh, but also working in theater and education. So taking real life experiences and integrating them into the stories we tell ourselves and that we tell each other at a variety of ages. And so the narrative traditions that children build for themselves to get through middle grade. Um, and we're gonna talk to her about this book today. It has just now received a starred review from our pals at School Library Journal, who call it a must-read for starting conversations and opening up dialogue about trauma of any kind. Now, I will tell you that the Lost Things Club does begin with the aftermath of a school shooting, so there are a lot of very big feelings depicted in this book, but Puller is an excellent writer, and she is going to bring us along through this book and through these experiences with Leah and TJ and their friends into this imaginative world in a way that is responsible and loving and healing. Welcome, J.S. Puller. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. This is, this is probably the second most exciting welcome I've ever gotten anywhere. I am whipped up with enthusiasm. It doesn't sound it in my voice, but I am really trying to, to keep my squeeing both appropriate and not hurtful to the ears of those who are listening to the podcast. I'm sure that listeners appreciate it. I'll try to do my best, but there may be some squeeing. <laughs> well, we'll we'll keep it as a low a low frequency squee. Uh, so, JS, I would like to get something out of the way quickly. The name on the front of your books is JS Puller, but I feel it's slightly impersonal to keep calling you JS. Is there another name we can use during the course of this podcast? I, you know, it's funny that it's the first question most librarians ask me when I come to speak with them. And the answer is yes, my name is Jessica. I tell librarians and students and teachers to call me that. We decided to go with JS for Captain Superlative because my agent thought it sounded mysterious, like I had some sort of secret identity. And that worked really well. And um, additionally, I've been going by JS with a lot of my playwriting. Because a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of studies showed that male playwrights get more responses than female playwrights. So I figured going gender neutral helped to uh, minimize that as much as possible. Although I've always been very lucky in my playwriting group, I usually work with people who already know me and already think I'm great. So that helps. Uh, we'll probably get into your playwriting a little bit because I am very fascinated by narrative communities and I think about a theater troupe and, and actors, directors, and producers working with a playwright as a narrative community as you're all building that. I know there's some playwrights where like you will read every single word on this precious page just as I have typed it down because I'm the most genius person on the planet. But I know that most playwrights are more collaborative. 
than that. You hope so. I love middle grade. I love middle grade. It is my favorite area of reading. Uh, picture books have their own special joys, and YA has uh, its own deal. I love middle grade. And I'm not going to reiterate for readers my whole soapbox about this, but middle grade is that place where characters realize there's an answer to the universe beyond just some giant Charlie Brown sounding teacher going, wah, 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 because I said so. This discovery, I think, you know, realizing that the universe is made for reasons or the world around me is created by reasons that adults do to solve adult decision making. This can be a very trying circumstance in the most mundane situation. You know, I can't play soccer this Wednesday because I my mother needs to take the car into the shop. That's a very mundane circumstance and it can seem very trying to the middle grade mind. But of course, in the Lost Things Club, and in Leah's case, and even more in TJ's, this is particularly acute. Because as the book opens, we're dealing with the aftermath of a situation made of decisions that are very shocking and traumatic and, and, and truly distressing. So given that you know even the other attractiveness of the middle grade age group is that it shows the most variety intellectually and emotionally in the 18 8 to 12 group i'm sure you know being a fourth grade teacher it's that book smart versus feeling smart etc how do you approach working with this age group and with these types of stories what's most important for you to communicate in the story and what's most important for you in how you communicate the story which is often not the same thing well i will start by confessing, you know, despite the fact that I've written several middle grade stories at this point, I actually didn't know middle grades was a genre that existed for a very long time. I sort of, when I began approaching writing in earnest, I thought it was all sort of lumped together in young adult. And I remember I went to a discussion panel, some debut authors who were talking about both middle grading young adult and I finally raised my hand and I asked the question that I think had been burning inside of me for longer than I realized which is what's the difference and at the time the panelists told me that the difference was the involvement of the parents they felt that in middle grade the parents were still a source of answers a source of wisdom whereas in in young adults you know one of my favorite tv tropes is adults are useless uh, as you see in so many TV shows where the adults are either hindering the character's progress or just unavailable or not even existent. And for a while, this was very, very real to me in trying to distinguish between the two genres. But I started to sort of think it was a little more complicated in that, uh, mostly in large part due to my, my nine-to-five job. I work at the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research, which is an amazing organization that does all sorts of research on education and practices. And while I was writing Captain Superlative, which was my first middle grade, knowingly middle, middle grade story, uh, my uh, coworkers were working on a project that developed a sort of framework for young adult success. And in this framework, they defined middle school as, they called it early adolescence, a period of profound personality development when kids are considering for the first time who they are in the world. 
You know, I'll give you a direct quote. During this time, the report says, youth are learning to establish more intimate friendships and staking out some degree of independence from their parents and families. So with this sort of in mind, I began to see that middle grade was less of a clean line between adults are useless and adults have meaning and more of a transitionary period. And I was, I was particularly intrigued you know, by the idea of personality development. I think that every story that I write, at least in the middle grade, is kind of a story of characters asking, who am I? And of course, there's no answer, there's no clean answer to that question as any human being who has been through adolescence would tell you. Even adults are still sometimes struggling with it. But the idea of who am I was just so incredibly profound, first in Captain Superlative, with, with my main character, Janie, and now in The Lost Things Club with Leah, who is essentially looking to discover who she is and how she can be special. And so ultimately, this is a story, I, I mean, and on surface, it's a story about kids helping kids. But deeper in, it's Leah realizing who she is, how she is a helper, as well as, you know, she discovers that she has a talent for directing puppet shows, talent for, for creating imaginary characters in lost worlds, but she profoundly comes to this realization that she is a helper. That just the journey she takes in the same way that Janie and Captain Superlative realizes that she is an individual rather than just someone who fades into air. And you know, any future stories I write, and I'm constantly writing, I am the, the champion of National Novel Writing Month, but every story mm -hmm. I write now in some ways dealing with the character discovering who they are, learning something new about themselves. That's, that's, that's wordy, I suppose, but that is the real appeal of middle grades for me. I really love that answer because I have always thought of middle grade as the place where moral psychology of a, of a person comes into play. Because yeah, it is I, about, I so. they discover choices. Adults are making choices. It's just, the world is not arbitrary. It is about choices and that kids that they these characters as kids they're they also can make choices and yeah, i think it's a discovery for them it really yes, is it really is like i can do this so for example tj preferring not to speak or decide preferring is the wrong verb what is the what is the verb you would use oh that's a tough one tj hmm, i think there's a certain amount of fear in speaking because fear in his mind caused speaking in his mind caused some really horrible things to happen. And mm -hmm. we learn later, of course, it's not his fault, but he is seven and doesn't necessarily understand that at the time. TJ is largely actually inspired by another report from the, uh, the U Chicago consortium that I actually had the, the privilege of working on, which was about, arts education and how it can impact social and emotional learning in young people. And there was an anecdote from our field research that played right into, unintentionally played right into the creation of this child who was dealing with elective mutism. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I think fear is something that keeps him from speaking for a very long time. And he finds his voice again, and it's a difficult, painful process, but a crucial one. Because the story is so much about communication and Leah being communi communicative and trying to break through to TJ and 
TJ, fearing the circumstances of this, I, I, I just love how you've set it up because that really, and depicting the variety of reactions because we know this age group is so, I don't want to say elastic, but there is so much variety within each child just because they're book smart and can understand words of many syllables. <laughs> does not mean they're emotionally ready for the consequences of knowing what those syllables are. Yeah, absolutely. That that pretty much sums up TJ. He is so book smart, and he is so young and so naive in the beginning. And it's the trauma of the shooting, which is a trauma, but for TJ it's the specific trauma of what he said in mm -hmm. his mind has a, has a connection to the shooting. So yeah. communication... Communication and figuring out who he is through communication becomes extra problematic. Oh, I hate that word, but you get where I'm going with it. I do, yes. What was most important for you to communicate in this book? What was the most important point you wanted to make in the book? Ooh, I, I think that that's very hard for me to narrow down because there were just so many different points that meant so much to me. Mm -hmm. You know, as I mentioned the, the arts education and social-emotional learning report. That is a huge cause for me. In times of trouble, the first thing to go in the school budget is arts education. Mm -hmm. But it is so, so critical and so useful in helping students to understand their emotions. And, you know, in this story, we're not in a school setting. But, you know, Leah and her friends are using a form of arts education. They're, they're putting on plays, they're putting on puppet shows. And this is helping TJ to work through his trauma. And that is very important to me. And likewise, the idea of kids helping kids. We see it, you know, in, in the story, TJ is going to a counselor. He, you know, his parents are trying to help him deal with his trauma through medical means. But it's really his friends, his cousin, his, his peers that are having the breakthrough with him. And I, I think that's just so important for kids to read and to understand that they have that power. They have the ability to help each other. Which was also a theme of Captain's Superlative. It's, it, it's definitely a through line in my writing because, as someone who was bullied a lot as a child. <laughs> And it's interesting, we do see a lot of books that deal with bullying, but I don't know that we see a lot of books that deal with this aspect of kids helping kids in this very particular way. There's always stand up to bullying, but maybe I don't see a lot of the long-term continuing, subtle, not, oh, I almost said a word I'm not supposed to use on a children's podcast, not flashy, not mm -hmm. after school special way uh, of doing that. Let's talk a little bit about the puppet show and the Lost Things Club itself, which I, as somebody who has con continuously loses things, but also has very tiny, apparently random objects that are very meaningful to me, I found this conceit to be quite powerful for myself. Every one of us has like a special thing. It's a thing. It might be an object. Uh, it might be a memory. I had a blanket that I had until I was 28 years old. I didn't sleep with this blanket, but it came with me from childhood. And when it eventually, that last scrap of it, gave up the ghost, I, I really was heartbroken because not so much of the blanket itself, but the memories with that blanket of 
this road trip, this friendship, this sort of thing. It just had so much history. And there are even books that I keep on my shelves that I haven't read in, say, 25 or 30 years, but I have that book because of that time in my life is so important to me and who I was at that time in my life. So, you know, during the course of the novel, we can see that these, these particular, whatever that thing is, it can be encouraging or it can be hindering. I loved the laundry because yes, a lot of things are lost in the laundry. We all know that the lint trap is a voracious monster that will steal <laughs> your socks. It's, these items are not so much lost, but they're reinvented, they're reinvested, they're recreated with new meaning. What, what were some of the talismans of your childhood that you brought into your adult life? And how have they shaped your work, especially when it comes to this novel of kids rethinking those objects, rediscovering them anew? Well, I'm sorry that the uh, the podcast is audio only right now. I'm actually wearing one of my, my talismans. It's a necklace. My grandmother used to work in a resale shop. And every now and then she would spot something that she thought my mother and I would like, and she would buy it for us. And she got me this necklace. I was probably about the same age as the characters in the Lost Things Club uh, when she gave it to me. And I now actually wear it pretty much every day, unless I'm in a costume or on stage. It is a silver pendant that's kind of teardrop shaped, made up of coils of a snake dragon. I'm not quite sure what, what kind of creature it is exactly. And there's, a, um, there's an amethyst on top of the dragon's head that sort of ends up right in the center of the pendant. Um, it's very I've striking. Gone, very striking. I've, I've gone through many chains, but I, I've managed to keep the pendant intact. And I am, I'm the sort of person who likes to come up with a backstory for everything. And as, as a young person when I received the necklace, I immediately started making up stories about it. You know, it belonged to a princess who had the power to manipulate time forwards and backwards. And at some point she realized she was going to lose her true love. And she shed one single tear, and that tear became the purple stone that the necklace was formed around, and it was passed down through her descendants till it landed in the hands of another young adventurer. And, you know, it, it, it turned into sort of fan fiction. And I have always, not always, I've often been a fan fiction writer, you know, from a very early age. My first play was a blatant ripoff of Star Trek, and I did fan fiction all through high school and college, which was sort of a nice gateway into writing original fiction. As someone who likes to, to make up stories, it naturally became a passion of mine to tell stories. And when I was, when I was an undergraduate at Northwestern, I took a class in storytelling. And actually one of the, the stories I told it involved the story The Pendant. And the, the, the class had such a profound impact on me that when I went back to school to get my master's in elementary education. My thesis was a research project around storytelling and the impact that it has in, in listening. Sadly, I can't publish any of this because I didn't get an IRB, but I did an experiment with students, reading them stories from a picture book and telling them stories orally. And they always retained and listened to the oral stories with much more passion. Mm -hmm. And when I went back to visit them long after my fellowship was over, they still remembered the stories. So storytelling 
is, I guess, the real totem when you think about it. I mean, the necklace is, is just a nice representation of the fact that I love telling stories, that I've always loved telling stories, and I guess it naturally fell into place that I would become a storyteller. Wow, I think I rambled very far off topic. But, no, but uh, I think it's interesting because it takes, I, as you were answering, I was thinking about Leah, because as part of this, we see the emergence of a storyteller. And as you were mentioning the story, it's like it's the totem or the thing. I don't know that I love the word totem here, but it's the thing. We'll use the thing that she and her friends and TJ bond with. It's that experience of telling and hearing and creating the meaning together that is that special memory. It, it creates that thing that's ultimately going to, to heal them. Do you think Leah is changed by the stories that she and her friends tell? Oh, I, I think all of them are. Uh, Leah is in a much more quiet way, I think. Mm -hmm. The storytelling, besides teaching her how she's special, I think it, it, it's actually very healing for her because when you know when we we are introduced to Leah at, at the beginning of the story, she I don't want to say she's broken, but she's definitely battered and bruised by some of the things that life has thrown her way. You know, she's dealing with her parents recently divorced. Mm -hmm. She she's got a cousin who is she's so close to and she can't reach him. She's feeling very isolated, and the storytelling that she ends up embarking on brings her together into a community you know she she starts the story her only friend is far away and by the end of the story she has this incredibly close tight-knit group of friends who I think she will be in touch with for the rest of her life I love that because I again I was initially charmed by the idea of the laundry and the objects until I realized it wasn't so much the objects it was the imagination and the meaningfulness put into the objects. And I think of, I think about Leah putting meaning into these things for TJ as, as healing, but also in her act of speaking and working with her friends on the puppet shows and all the other things that they get together to do. They're modeling that choice making, that meaning making, to be healing for themselves and each other, which I, I just... It's a very magical depiction of that process. People underestimate the, the, the importance of dramatic play, of make-believe in childhood, but it really is kind of a dress rehearsal for life. Uh, you know, as a child, I was, I was the kid who was running around pretending to be chased by the Phantom of the Opera, you know, while my peers were, were playing kickball. I formed my own close friendships on this foundation of we wanted to play make-believe, we wanted to tell stories, we wanted to be characters. And I, I, you know, I try not to do autobiographical writing, but it always sneaks in. No, no matter what I'm writing, some of it will always get in, and I think that aspect of my childhood definitely shows um, in The Lost Things Club. And that's, it's dedicated to one of my very, very best friends, who I've known, I met her in kindergarten. We became friends in second grade, and we we played all sorts of ridiculous fairy tale make believe games. There's nothing ridiculous about that. Let me just reassure you. As a kid who enjoyed Dungeons and Dragons, 
Oh, yes. Or Magic the Gathering is another one. I once watched a kid fall in love with Magic the Gathering in real time because his I could see the wheels spinning of the stories he could tell about it. Or Dungeons and Dragons when I was uh, younger thinking about my first boyfriend. Oh, God. Okay, memory lane trip for another time. But I, I'm always interested by how younger readers access story and access thinking about moral choices and psychology through stories, even if they don't realize they're doing that, but also thinking about the adults who will share this book with young readers and how they're thinking about how this, how the stories they choose to share within their classrooms or libraries or even within their families affect those kids that they're reading together because a family reading this book together, that's a whole other layer of that. So it's not so much that lost sock or that strange, magically, deliciously beautiful red pebble. It's the, it's the story that you make about how the pebble got there, just like your pendant and how that memory becomes the thing that guides them through. I just love that. You know, we've talked a lot about the objects and the storytelling. Every single, this is a very tight book. We're used to doorstop or middle grades. <laughs> and I think this book clocks in, it's about 300 pages finished, I think. It actually reads much more tightly than that, which I think is a tribute to your plotting. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, no, sometimes you read something like that was only, that was 300 pages. It felt like seven because, oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, because it's not, there's, there's two, there's a lot of extraneous. It's a, but The Lost Things Club is quite a tight book. Uh, so the language seems chosen to re for its impact. And this may be a function of your playwriting where, you know, you have to really, we're not doing the ring cycle here. Well, unless maybe you are doing the ring cycle and we're going to, you know, spend 10 hours in Chicago next summer. Maybe someday. <laughs> but that seems to be, you've plotted it for that the, the language that in the dialogue, that seems very chosen and it has an excellent mouthfeel and meant to be heard with the ear as well as the brain and the, and the descriptors, etc. Um, I don't know, this may be an editing question, and I don't know the editing process of this book, because again, Disney versus Little Brown, that whole saga. Uh, but can you talk to us a little bit how you chose the language for the book? Because, you know, this, you've written uh, Captain Superlative, is a different, slightly different audience, slightly older in my mind, there's the playwriting, but how did you choose the language for this book? And, and did your thinking about physically hearing it or reading aloud did that change how you do how you worked with it i mean the the, the answer to that question is kind of a non-answer the very messy process messy is good I, there's nothing wrong with messy the book is the book how you got there is interesting yeah i i guess in some ways it was a very much the opposite of the way that i approached captain superlative um and in some ways very much the same captain superlative started its life as a play I wrote it as a play. It got performed in uh, 2015, and I loved hearing it out loud so much that I sort of decided, you know, I'm not done with this story. I think there's more I can do. Mm -hmm. And I took what was essentially all the dialogue and built the story around it. Okay. Which probably explains why the dialogue in Captain Superlative is very theatrical. It's very, very it's essentially just the script with narration around it and with lost things club i didn't have that as an option because this was not a play mm -hmm. this was something that i was writing from scratch and when i first set out to write it my my biggest biggest goal 
was to make sure that Leah didn't sound like Janie. I, I really wanted the characters to sound different. Mm -hmm. And that proved very complicated, uh, I suppose, because so many of Jane, Janie's vocal tics came very natural to me and I you know I really wanted to avoid that so that was that was a definite process especially the characters are so alike too which haunted me throughout the the writing of the story and I found myself I thinking of uh, Leah in terms as I rewrote in terms of different Hogwarts houses actually you know I started with her as a Ravenclaw and then I decided to make her Slytherin and she ended up being a Hufflepuff you know, as I worked to decide on her personality and her characteristics. And I was actually talking about this yesterday. Someone at, at a conference asked me which character was me. And of course, the, the, the answer is all of them. But I, I spoke for a little bit of, about how TJ was initially sort of my poetic side. Unfortunately, we had to cut certain portions of the book, you know, to streamline and to, to make it the story it needed to be. And one thing that was cut were uh, journal entries by TJ. Oh. Uh, part of the story towards the end is he, he, he has started keeping a journal to sort of keep track of his emotions. And at one point in, in a couple of drafts, I sort of bookended the story with TJ's first person voice describing his feelings and emotions in a very poetic way. But ultimately we decided it would, take the story in a direction we didn't want it to go because it, it was very melancholy, very sad. And I, I don't think this is a story about a school shooting. I think no. it is a story that takes after one, but with TJ's narrative, it was just very upsetting. Um, so those had to go. And then I, I'm sort of the, near to the end. I realized that Leah was starting to sound like a 40 year old woman. So I had to cut down on her, <laughs> Her vocab a little, because she was using words that no 12-year-old would use, except maybe Janie, but this is not Janie's story. So it, it, was a, it was a very messy process. And I think, I think editing is supposed to be messy, because what comes out of it is always just so much better, even if you don't imagine it's going to be at the time. And I, I, I hesitate to call it you know, akin to birth, but it is a really messy, bloody awkward process and you have to have the patience to go through it and you have to have the patience to to kill your darlings is to say how did you know you were done oh i'm still not sure i'm done <laughs> <laughs> I, I i will never be done uh, you know I, I i went through back and forth with my fabulous uh editor at uh, little brown sam gentry shout out to sam oh, sam she's amazing and I, you know, there was just a lot of back and forth. It's a very iterative process, which is actually similar to how a lot of my playwriting experiences have gone. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, I was lucky enough for a while to work with a fabulous ensemble. Um, and every year I would write them a play and we'd do a lot of back and forth. I would write it. They would read it and give me notes. I'd go rewrite it. They would, someone else would read it and give me notes and go back and forth, and it got better every time. Editing is intimidating and horrifying and scary, but it is ultimately so gratifying when you can finally step back and say, this is so much better. Well, I love that you are aware that you're not finished, 
because this <laughs> book really it's not about a school shooting it's about the the ripples about the echoes of that event and uh-huh. a book is sort of almost more about the reverberations of reading the book than it is about the book itself so i'll ask this a different way how when did you know or how did you know you were ready to let go of this aspect of the story as in you were ready to let other readers child readers a real not a real audience but you know an outside audience read the book i think i got to a point where i felt that if i added more or if i tweaked it anymore i would ruin something that i had going I, you know i kind of felt I, there there is such a thing as too many rewrites and mm-hmm. doing any more would have started to damage the fabric that we had so carefully worn, woven together. I think that was a very, very big part of that decision. And, you know, uh, Sam and I worked closely, and, and when she felt good about it, you know, that felt good to me because she, she wasn't living in it the way I was. And so if an outside voice says, this is good, that, I mean, that, that, that's a real feel-gooder for one thing, mm-hmm. but it also is usually a good signal that it's time to let other outside voices speak to it. Speak to it. I love that. I love that. <laughs> it's a tight book. It's a well-edited book. It is a concise book in ways. I, I keep saying it's 300 pages, but it really packs a lot in there, and it's not, it's not a doorstopper, but it's one of those books that lingers which I adore. And it is a book that, whose language and, and, and just how you've set it up, it allows the reader to enter into the story as, as a member of the puppet theater troupe <laughs> and to be part of that action, to become part of that narrative community, which I really enjoy. So giving your young readers agency to be part of it. That, I mean, that's that's frequently a goal of mine. I always think about, with theater, the ride home. You know, what are the kids going to talk about in the car with their parents on the ride home? And this is obviously going to be a little bit different, but I, I do hope that it is the beginning of conversation. I love that, and it's the perfect note on which to end the ride home. Uh, J.S. Puller, Jess Puller, Jessica Puller, I just, that I'm never going to get tired of that one. Thank you so very much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Listeners throughout the virtual universe, The Lost Things Club by J.S. Puller, an excellent middle grade novel about Leah and TJ and their friends speaking and not speaking, listening and feeling should be on your shelves now. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.